All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. All right, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Dobrin, the Fishing Professor, and I am fired up about this week's Rodcast because we have got one of the biggest rising stars in the bass world with us today in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. That's right, we are going to talk bass and bass tactics with pro tournament angler and co-host of the Sweetwater Television Show, Miles Sonar Berghoff today. And after Miles gives us some great bass fishing advice, I'll get into my top 10 list for the week, and we'll keep that theme of bass fishing moving forward, sort of. And I'll offer up my top 10 bass lures that are easily transitioned into saltwater fishing scenarios. That's right, I'll be counting down my top 10 bass lures for saltwater fishing. And if that isn't enough for you, you demanding listening crew, you... I'll also pour out my thoughts about Buffalo Trace's white dog like I'm in therapy. And speaking of therapy, if you ever feel the need to talk about any aspect of the Fishing Professor Rodcast, you should always feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or use the comment option on any of the platforms through which you have accessed the Rodcast. Because when it comes down to it, I'm always there for you. As always, if you like the show, or even if you don't, please share our links with everyone you know. And if you don't know anyone or aren't the sharing type, you might want to think a bit more about that therapy. So permission to come aboard, and let's cast off. All right, we have got a treat today, because in the inshore, offshore digital studio, we have got Miles Berghoff. That's Miles Sonar Berghoff of Sonar Fishing. He's a pro tournament angler out of Hickson, Tennessee, with two major league fishing wins and 22 top 10 finishes. But here's the great thing about Miles as a competitive angler. He knew early on he wanted to be a competitive angler, and he started tournament fishing when he was only 12 years old. That ain't enough for you? How about this? While attending the University of Central Florida, he qualified twice for the FLW College Fishing National Championships, and in 2011, he won the Boat U.S. Collegiate Bass Championship. He is the only angler to qualify for the BFL All-American through his collegiate ranks. Today, he's a regular on the MLF Pro Circuit, and last year, he won the 2021 Tackle Warehouse Pro Circuit Tournament on the Mississippi. He's got a fleet of top-tier sponsors on his jersey, and he represents the MyShear fleet, Navionics, Fitzgerald Fishing, Phoenix Boats, Mercury Motors, Z-Man Lures, Cabela's, Seagar, Scales, Battleborne Batteries, Motor Guide, Bass Boat Electronics, Hayabusa, and PowerPole. He's also the co-host of that fantastic fishing show, Sweetwater, which airs on the Sportsman's Channel. Sweetwater has just entered its eighth season, which should tell you something about the quality of the show if it's lasted that long so far. Sweetwater follows Miles and Joe and Nanya as they travel around the country in pursuit of the best fishing there is. The show is beautiful. Shot in high-def video, Sweetwater highlights some of the most magnificent images of the natural world. It really is visually stunning. 
Miles is also one of the most sought-after guides around, and he'll put you on trophy bass on Lake Chickamauga. Am I saying that right? Chickamauga? Uh, right, just north of Chattanooga. And if you time it right, he'll also guide you to some amazing fish in one of the most beautiful places in the country at Baranoff Wilderness Lodge in Alaska, in Alaska's southeast region, just about 90 miles south of Juneau. 90 miles. <laughs> So, like I said, it's a treat to have Miles in the inshore offshore studio today. Miles, thanks for being on the Rodcast. Man, I I'm honored. Thank you for that that uh, very uh, very nice intro. Uh, the only note that I have to give you on on the the intro was the uh, uh, I did not actually win the entire title event at the Mississippi last year for some reason on the Major League Fishing website. It says that I did. I actually won my qualifying round. Um, but it shows on, on the website that I wanted. So I just wanted to, to clear that my good buddy, uh, Jimmy Washam actually ended up winning the entire event. So, uh, kudos to him. Oh, excellent. Thanks for the clarification. I was just going on the official information. No, I think you no, should no, run with it. The... If they're going to keep it on the webpage. <laughs> I, you know, know, I, know. <laughs> I know. I look at it every time. I'm like, man, if only I actually won the entire title event, that would, that would be, uh, that would be pretty cool. But one day we're going to, we're going to do it someday. It might be this year. Sounds good, man. All right, so we usually start the conversations on the Fishing Professor Show with a question or two about fishing origins, about what got you interested in fishing. And for you, that interest must have been pretty powerful, given the fact that you knew by the time you were 12, you wanted to be a competitive angler. So what got you there? Gosh, man, uh, you know, it, it, it obviously started with just a, a a very strong passion for the sport. You know, um, uh, I grew up in, in the Southern Florida, actually down on the keys in marathon. So early on, I knew that I loved fishing. I just had a, a very strong passion for it. And then I caught my first bass in Connecticut of all places. We've got a lake house up there, uh, a summer house. And, uh, and it, I caught my first smallmouth bass there. Uh, I think that was my first bass ever. It definitely the first one I recall. And that just, lit a fire uh, under me and and ever since I was just so ate up with with uh, fishing and then when I was in, living in California I know I'm bouncing all over the place that's I guess that's why they call me miles uh, but it's uh, I was I was in California going to school you know right around 12 years old and I started you know I knew I loved fishing but then I started seeing these magazines at the local tackle shop there in Paradise California um, and, uh, you know, it was like the, the, uh, I think it was one bass, uh, there's a bunch of different, you know, uh, Bass West magazine was one of them. Uh, and I started seeing these professional anglers, you know, with their, their embroidered jerseys on and, and, uh, and I was like, what is going on here? These guys are actually making a living fishing. In fact, the first magazine I remember had Aaron Martins on it. So I, I really credit, you know, uh, that, uh, Aaron Martins, the late, and great uh Aaron Martins to uh to really helping me embrace my dream of becoming a professional fisherman because I saw him on the the cover of, of Bass West magazine back in the day excellent um yeah he was great man uh, I remember watching him on the tour on tv all the time so oh, let, let's hang on there for a second because I think we need to clarify for the unanointed about your name also and I'm not going to dwell on it but I think that there's part of the origin story, not just with the name, but because of who your dad was and all the patents for fishing equipment. I mean, he, he yeah. had, had some influence. So let, let's hear about that. So, yeah. So, uh, 
most people think that I'm, I'm, I'm named, you know, my nickname is Sonar, which I didn't coin, by the way. Uh, other people call, started calling me Sonar, but they, I, most people assume, you know, oh, it's because he knows his electronics. Well, I do know my electronics and I, I use them uh, quite often. But uh, my dad actually uh, was the actor who played uh, Radar on the TV series MASH. And, you know, as I was fishing tournaments, when I moved back to Florida and started, uh, you know, uh, fishing all the BFLs and everything, um, the people that I, I, was, I, I was running with uh, started calling me Sonar, you know, Son of Radar. And it kind of it kind of stuck. So, yeah, it comes from my dad who, who played that that iconic role. Right. And he also was a hardcore angler. I mean, he's got several oh, patents yeah. in big game fishing rod design and uh, bait distribution design. Yeah, um, I've actually got one of his products that he patented and he actually sold in Bass Pro Shops back in the day. Uh, it was called Chum Magic. It was essentially like a boogie board with a uh, with a chum uh, basket in the middle of it. And you'd essentially tow it behind your boat out offshore fishing, you know, and, and of course you had the shade because of the board itself. And then you had the, the chum disbursement and uh, you had a target to cast to. So from the boat, you could cast to the, the, the chum magic board and there would be all kinds of bait fish hanging around it. Cause we all know offshore fishing, you know, you get any type of, of, you know, object that is shading, creating shade, you know, those, those bait fish really are, it's like a magnet. Um, so, and, and then of course you got the prey fish. So that was a, a cool product. I think he had a, a patent out on a curved butt spinning rod, uh, which gave you more leverage and, and stuff like that. So yeah, he, he's my, I definitely have a, a, a pedigree when it comes to, to fishing, you know, or at least, uh, having a passion for the sport. Um, because, uh, it, my, my dad was definitely passionate about it too. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I think the last time we talked, I told you that MASH has always been my favorite television show. I watch it almost every day still. And so when I had first read about his connection and the patents, I had read, I've read the patents he's got on file, you know, just a great pedigree there. But, you know, you just said that other people named you Sonar and you kind of pushed that back a little bit. But, dude, you named your dog Doppler. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, yet again, I can't take credit for that one. That that is Doppler's actually sitting in the seat behind me right now. Um, but uh, my wife wanted to name him Doppler. I was, I, you know, I was honestly because he's corgi, he got su such small legs. I was going to call him Lieutenant Dan, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> uh, but he, uh, uh, yeah, my wife can take the credit for that but you know it, it is a lot of fun it is fun to to you know have a, a dog named doppler and i have you know a nickname that that is coined because of that uh, that that role that my dad played so um you know i i definitely like to to um uh, you know make sure that i i run off of my my own accolades but i do really appreciate the you know having that nickname it's a just a really cool story and uh and you know a conversation starter for sure out and you know now we're just waiting who you're going to name lidar who you're going to name echo <laughs> i think it's i think it's ended there i'm pretty sure it's it's, it's, it's ended there i've i've uh our, our next dog I, I i told my wife that that i get to name him but doppler fits perfect i mean he's it's a great great name for sure excellent all right. So you've had a rather successful pro career so far, and there's still a lot to come for you on the circuit. And you began early. 
And now as a pro, as pro angling has become even more popular, we see a lot of kids thinking about going pro. The new interest in both high school competitive fishing and collegiate competitive fishing have really energized the younger generation to want to go pro. What advice would you give to a high school student thinking about competitive fishing as a path? Well, number one, you know, the fishing comes easy. The passion for fishing, it really does uh, come, come quite naturally, you know, because that's why we started in the first place. Um, but the biggest advice that I would give young up and coming anglers is to focus on the fishing and also put a lot of energy into uh, building the foundation for the business side later on down the road. Nowadays, <coughs> excuse me, uh, nowadays, uh, you know, uh, sponsorship is a huge part of this game, but it's not like it, it once was back in the day where, where it's all about just, you know, doing well in tournaments and then slapping a logo on a, a boat truck or, or your Jersey, it requires a lot of work and, uh, and you want to make sure that you're prepared for that. So, so make sure that you do a, a lot of networking. Don't really focus on, on landing any sponsorship deals, but get to know people in the industry, you know, go to the Bassmaster classic, go to the, the, uh, red crest or, or ICAST. all of those are really, really super important. And so uh, just, just get to know everybody in the industry, learn as much as you can, and definitely put a lot of energy into the business side and build your social media platforms. I mean, that is the most important, uh, part of this of this gig when it comes to what you can provide sponsors and the value that you can build and uh and so just just concentrate on the fishing have a good time don't you know you know if you really concentrate too much on the on on getting sponsors early on you could get burned out and it's it's just you you just the reality is you don't have the value early on unless you already have those social media platforms so focus on the fishing build the the network uh, and, uh, and get to know the industry. And then as you end up creating more value, um, companies are going to start realizing that. And then you actually can, can, uh, uh, you know, engage in, in a, you know, one of those mutually beneficial business relationships, as I call them, those, those sponsorships, um, because that's what it's all about is creating value for them. So they can, uh, you know, they can pretty much bankroll your passion. Um, and, uh, and so that is, that is the biggest piece of advice that I can give people. And also, and I don't mean to, to drone on about this too much, but I'm very passionate about the, the business side and, and, you know, making sure that people do it right. Um, don't burn any bridges, Sid, as you know, this, this, uh, this industry is, it, it seems massive. It seems huge. You go to ICAST and it seems just gigantic, but it's actually a very small, uh, industry, you know, comparable to, to other industries in the world. And so, uh, you know, somebody that may be working at one company may be working at another company, uh, and probably will honestly, because, because usually you've got this, um, you, you've, you've got that, that turnover and you, one guy usually goes to another company and it, you just see that a lot. So don't burn any bridges, treat everybody right. Make sure that you are, are trying to do, um, the best for companies. You might not succeed every single time, but make sure that that is your number one effort and, and focus and, uh, and man, it'll pay off in the long run. Just make sure that you are, you have a, a long-term mindset in this sport. Wow. That's fantastic advice. You know, I think there's a subset there too, to what you're talking about with the social media and not burning bridges 
of also developing a really strong public persona too, right? You know, we look at all sports now, you know, look at what, um, you know, uh, Patrick Mahoney's has been able to do with his public image uh, and yeah. just the numbers of sponsors he picks up. But that's the same in MLF as well. You want to be you want to be somebody they want on screen. Yeah, it's and, you know, it is it's not always like I was not a I was not good on camera in the beginning. I remember, you know, you, you we probably have a mutual friendship and in, in Ken Duke, every everybody you know, likes Ken Duke. He's, he's a, a big figure in the, in the industry. And I remember he, he gave me the opportunity to do some videos, um, back in the day. And, uh, I was terrible at him. I was nervous. And, uh, and so it's a learned skill. So don't feel bad if, if, you know, being on camera is just not your, your deal right off the bat, but you need to make sure to, to, to build those skills. Uh, and that's going to be really important. And that is part of the whole value package that you can bring as an angler. Um, I always say that my job description isn't just it isn't to catch fish, but it's to get people excited about fishing and to teach them how to do it better. Uh, and if you have that mindset and that's your 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 um, your job description that you put just ingrained in your mind, uh, it's going to be hard for you to do wrong in this sport because you're, you're, again, you're trying to provide that value. Excellent. So with that in mind, let's talk about Sweetwater for a minute. Yeah, Sweetwater, yeah, yeah. Sweetwater is in season eight. Um, and I think I told you that I love in season eight, episode one, when you're talking about the hideout in Texas, one of your regular sponsors, that yeah. you say, I think it's you say, you know, what my favorite part about Texas is, and then Joey says, what? And you just go brisket. That's just brilliant. Right? <laughs> well, so, it is, it is the truth. That is my, uh, my favorite thing about uh, Texas is that they brought brisket to the, the forefront. <laughs> That's great. So tell us about the show and what we can expect in the new season and what it's like being part of that production. Yeah, it's been, it's been a really fun ride and man, Sweetwater has really teed up a lot of great opportunities, you know, so working with companies like Z-Man and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, a, a lot of the different companies that I, w- I work with personally have come from, from Sweetwater. So big, uh, it's been a big, big opportunity for me. And it's a lot of fun to learn the production production, you know, how, uh, how a, sh- a fishing show is created, uh, working with the production teams. We've got a, 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 a two great production companies that we work with one that, that actually, produces and one that actually you know films and edits and pretty much produces as well and uh and learning from both of those companies and all those people involved has been a a big deal and and uh so yeah it's been a really exciting ride and and we just finished up season eight um we went down to florida and got to hang out with a good buddy of mine chris kingry um, with 44 tackle. And we, we, uh, also, uh, of course did a little bit of filming down at Texas at the hideout resort. And then also down in Texas with my, my friends on the pro circuit, Dakota Ebear and Jim Tut. Um, uh, we went down to Sam Rayburn after the Sam Rayburn event, we did some shows down there. So those, I think that is the end of, of season eight. And so we're looking forward to season nine. I'm not sure where we're going to go next. Can't wait to see it. So I mentioned in the introduction that Sweetwater is really known for his, its amazing imagery. I mean, that's some great high def shooting. Now, uh, like I said, I didn't want to bring all this around to your dad, but your dad, among all of his other talents, is also a wildlife painter, if I recall correctly. Yeah. 
Do you and he talk about imagery and the beauty of how we represent nature and images like on Sweetwater? We, we do not on Sweetwater. Actually, I do uh, wildlife art myself. Um, I've got, I've got, uh, you know, a a few drawings that I've actually sold and and need to get back into it because that's something that I could be doing as a side hustle. uh, And I really enjoy it during the off season. But um, yeah, we didn't, we haven't really talked about it much in relation to, uh, to Sweetwater, but um, we definitely do talk a lot when it, it, it's in reference to art and, uh, and, and, you know, nature uh, relating to that art. You know, as we're talking about the show, I'm thinking about the traditions of great fishing shows like those early bass fishing TV originators like Bill Dance, Jimmy Houston, yeah. Roland Martin, Hank Parker, Al Linder, and how much those shows influence the world of bass fishing and then by default the world of competitive bass fishing. When you think about what you do with Sweetwater, how do you situate what you're doing within that fantastic tradition of angling television? Gosh, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I, I you know, I just try to do the best I can and, and just really, uh, again, try to exude excitement for the sport. I mean, that is the, the key. And then to do as much teaching as I possibly can. Uh, in every episode. And, uh, you know, I feel like that right there is the key, you know, is just, is just um, show how exciting this sport really is, because it really is, there's nothing quite like it. And, uh, and then make sure that we back that up with, with good teaching experiences. And I can't claim to be a a fraction of what those guys that you just mentioned, and I'll throw in another one, Bob Zumi, you know, who has a huge, huge, um, you know, big, long, uh, um, history on television. He's, he's got one of the longest running uh, fishing shows out there. And I actually got to be on one of the episodes or two of them, um, which I'm, I'm honored. And, and my dad was too, back in the day. So, uh, guys like, like everybody you mentioned and Bob and, and, uh, and those guys are, are legends and they have really teed up what the, the opportunities that I have today. And, uh, so I try to just be, you know, show people how exciting fishing is and teach them how to do it better. And hopefully I, I can do that in my, in small part. Yeah. You know, as you say that, I'm thinking about Roland Martin in particular, yeah. um, but you know, I don't know if you know the, you know, fast times at Ridgemont high, that scene where, where Damone is telling rat, you know, when you're on a date, always pretend like right here, right now is the best thing you've ever experienced. And I always got that feeling from Roland Martin that every single fish, every location, this is the best thing ever right here. And I think it did a lot to really vitalize that idea of this is so exciting when I'm bass fishing. Yeah. And it's really not that hard. (laughs) It's really not that hard to be excited because every every moment moment in, in fishing is just so suspenseful and, and, and exciting, you know, even if you're just fishing with a bobber and a cricket or something like that, it's, you know, the suspense of waiting for that bobber to go down. There's just nothing quite like it. So I think we, as, as, uh, you know, fishing TV hosts, uh, have a pretty easy job, you know, to, to get excited about it. Yeah. I love that. All right. Let's, let's talk Z-Man for a second, not just because yep. they're one of your sponsors, but because frankly, what Joey Projaska, I always mispronounce his name, is doing with Z-Man has been fantastic. And they're turning out some top, top-notch bass lures, like their skirted bass jigs and their ch- uh, chatterbaits get a lot of attention. I know that you're a fan of Z-Man's Turbo Crossy, 
the fitness TRD, the fitness shrooms, weedless jig head, and the boar hogs. But let's talk about the Z-Man lures for bass anglers and bass fishing. So I'm going to pick on your expertise for a bit, and I'm going to ask you about a few types of lures that have the reputation as some of the best lures for bass fishing. And of course, we're speaking generically here, so we can talk about it in terms of Z-Man, or you can just simply talk about it generically. I'm going to throw a few types of lures at you. And I want you to give me your best pro tip for how to fish that lure. Okay. You got it. All right. So since I mentioned the finesse TRD and uh, let's start with stick baits, plastic uh, stick baits. Uh, How do we fish a plastic uh, stick bait like the finesse TRD? Well, I I actually uh, uh, classify a stick bait as more of a zinkers type bait. So zinkers type bait. Uh, you know, is, is that, that it's kind of a wide bodied straight tail worm design that is, is, you know, really well known for fishing weightless. And uh, the, the TRD is, a, is for me is the Ned rig system, which is a, a, um, a weighted jig head, you know, exposed jig head um, or not even exposed all the time, but that one, I mean, everybody knows about the Ned rig and how awesome that is and how incredible it is on, on a light line. Um, but a, a stick bait, which would, uh, you know, and forgive me if I'm going off on a ten- tangent, stick bait like the Zinkers, man, is just, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because this is right now the best time to throw a stick bait in April. You know, most of the, the, the uh, country, the fish are starting to hit the beds. I'm looking at a beautiful bluebird. Uh, day here in Tennessee, and I know that those fish are on the beds, and a stick bait is is one of the best to wacky rig. Uh, I generally will use a a um, a exposed wacky rig setup. I've got a Hayabusa, a wacky rig hook. They make a really good uh, specialized wacky rig hook that's a little bit wider, but has you know they make it a different types of of um, uh, uh, wire thicknesses uh, for different types of cover. And you just hook it right through the middle, you know, right around that, 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 uh, that smooth collar that's on there. And, uh, and you just, you just cast it to likely areas where the fish are going to spawn and let it fall down on its own weight. The Zinkers has a, a tremendous amount of salt content. Uh, and so it does sink and it flutters as it falls down to the bottom. And it's just a very, very subtle technique, but the, fish absolutely love it and it's great for bed fishing so that is that is my favorite uh time to to fish a stick bait um what i call a stick bait um as far as the ned rig which you allude to with the trd or the big trd or even the giant trd that is a a jig head type of of um technique which also light line uh, it's it's broader in its use throughout the year you can use it in any season uh, and, uh, it's just, it's just, especially the finesse TRD. That's my, one of my favorite finesse tactics, uh, you know, eight, 10 pound test, maybe even down to six pound test or lighter. Uh, and just, you know, uh, fishing it in all different types of, of situations, you know, it's just a really bite-sized small finesse tactic that, that really, um, it fish just, you know, attack, you use it on spinning gear and, and, uh, man, there's going to be no shortage of, of bites on that bait. All right. If that's the case, what about finesse worms? Finesse worms, um, that 
that one, you know, they, they've, they've got the, the finesse worms. It's mostly designed for fishing on a, a, um, a shaky head. In fact, I'll go one better because uh, the finesse worms is, is a more traditional um, uh, uh, design, you know, that, that finesse uh, a straight tail worm design. Uh, which still works great, but they actually designed a new one called the SMH Worms. Uh, and my, my buddy Brian Latimer and, and Z-Man worked together on that one. Uh, and they came out with a new worm that has a really great design that has a ton of action and is, is still very simple, um, but it, it, it is designed so that you get the maximum amount of tail action um, so for a shaky head presentation, um, that, that is a really great worm. And they also designed a new jig head around it, um, called the SMH jig head, which I think is really unique. It's got more of a, uh, bullet style head. I think it's going to work great around brush, um, way better than a, a ball head style shaky head, um, jig head would work. And, uh, it's also great for just dragging on, on gravel. So, uh, I think that, that, you know, the finesse worms is, is still a, a great bait but people definitely need to try that, that new SMH worms. And again, that's a shaky head setup, still spinning gear for me. Um, and, and usually eight, 10 pound test. And it's just great for those bare bottom, you know, situations where you got sand, shell beds, uh, gravel, something like that. All right. What about a classic spinner bait? Ooh, that's a good one. So I just, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of, of YouTube stuff lately uh, on my sonar fishing YouTube channel. And I just did a video on this because I learned a valuable lesson. It was a hard lesson to learn at uh, Dale Hollow the other day. Toyota series event out there. And the first day I sucked. I mean, I just straight up stank. Uh, I didn't have a fish in the boat 15 minutes before weigh-in, And then I ended up catching two fish that keyed me in on a, uh, on a spinnerbait bite. Um, you know, and spinnerbait has kind of taken, it, been overshadowed by, by, uh, you know, a chatterbait of shallow because originally a spinnerbait really was the choice for power fishing up shallow around cover. Right. Um, and we've kind of gone away from that, but there's one, uh, there's one, uh, niche that it, it that it does way, way better in than, than, uh, most baits. And that is for suspended fish. If you're not, it's like the, if you really think about it, a spinner bait is actually the original Alabama rig. It creates that bait ball profile, that, that bait ball uh, visual uh, cue. And so those fish um, really attack it like a, a, uh, a Alabama rig. And in, in situations where you can't use an Alabama rig or it's not viable to throw into cover, uh, spinner bait does a really good job. So like during the pre-spawn or early season, when you're fishing, uh, you know, Highland reservoirs or Canyon reservoirs, like, like Dale hollow, uh, where you've got steep banks leading into these, these spawning pockets, you know, 45 degree banks and even bluff banks with cover on them, you know, lay down trees, you can slow roll a spinner bait. And it's amazing how effective that bait is in that situation. So for suspended bass, you know, beyond shallow water power fishing, which a spinner bait is great at, at times, uh, Fishing it for suspended fish is was a lesson that I, I had to relearn at the last event. And it helped me on day two to catch, uh, you know, a, a, a big bag the second day and to move up 100 spots. Um, and uh, and so it's it, a traditional spinnerbait 
cannot be forgotten for those suspended fish situations. One more lure. Talk to me about deep diving crankbaits. Oh, man. So deep diving crankbaits are one thing that, that I was, it was kind of one of my weaknesses. Up until last year, I got third place in, in a Toyota series on Chickamauga last year. The fish just were not eating baits. You had to get them to react. And a deep diving crankbait does just that. So if you're faced with a school of fish that will not eat a worm, they will not eat a jig, they will not, you know, eat whatever you're throwing at them. You know, a deep diving crankbait just burned right through that school can be the ticket. I mean, and sometimes it's the only thing that they'll really, really eat because it, they don't have time to, to, you know, uh, to look at it and to discern whether or not they want to strike it. They have to strike it right then and there because it's right in their face. So that to me is, and I'm not no expert on deep diving crankbaits, but I do love throwing them on ledges when you've got big schools of fish because of that reason, you know, when you can't get them to strike on any, anything else, a deep diving crankbait will get them to react. All right. Excellent. I do have to say that I really appreciate the videos you put out that teach these kinds of things. Uh, I really like that one you did for the Z-Man goat series as well, which was oh, yeah. a pretty, pretty cool video. All right. It's cool. Pretty cool series of baits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Since we're talking gear here, um, one of the things I get asked a lot is why bass anglers prefer bait casting reels over spinning reels. And you just mentioned throwing some stuff with spinning reels instead of bait casters. What's your preference and why do you choose one over the other? Well, it, you know, I love the feel of bait casting gear. There's just nothing better than having that, you know, that, that, uh, that bait caster in your palm. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I love, picking up a bait caster and I'm a shallow water power fisherman. So usually I've got, you know, like a Fitzgerald VLD 10 in my hand, uh, as opposed to a, a spinning rod. Um, but it, it really comes down to the, the mechanics of, of both of those platforms. So spinning reels are, are more, um, are more optimized for light line presentations. Um, and, and lighter lures, whenever you have a lure that doesn't have a whole lot of weight to it, a, um, the, a spinning reel, the line is flaking off, uh, without the, the, uh, restriction of the spool. You know, it's just, it's just flaking off the spool right off the top. A bait casting reel requires the spool to actually spin to release that line. And so if you have a very, very light finesse presentation like a finesse trd especially one of the lighter uh, versions of the jig heads uh it's going to be really really hard for you to be able to cast that that uh that lure efficiently with a bait casting reel as opposed to a spinning rod and also a spinning reels uh, uh ability to to have a smoother drag and to to really allow you to fight the fish uh, effectively with light line with that drag system is, is far superior to a, um, a bait casting reel. A, a spinning reel really allows you to, to set the drag just right. So you're not having any uh, breakages. I mean, there's, there's no way, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to adjust the spinning reel. And I break line all the time just because I, I, I like to uh, horse fish in. It has nothing to do with the line I'm using, but I, I, I generally, you know, I get so excited. So, so sometimes I set the hook a little bit too hard or fight them too hard with spinning gear. Um, but, but, you know, spinning gear, you should be able to, to loosen up on it 
and, uh, and, uh, and just have it set perfectly. Um, that's something I've had to learn. And of course, you know, it also helps to have good leader material. I always use just a, a braided mainline of, of Seaguar Smackdown. And recently I started using their gold label fluorocarbon leader material. And I haven't had hardly any breaks at all, but a lot of, of, of that has to do with, you know, setting the drag and spinning reels have the best drag system for light line. Excellent. That's a great explanation. So you mentioned the Fitzgerald rods. Give me the lowdown on Fitzgerald rods. I'm seeing them all over the place these days and I hear nothing but good things about them. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. I, I actually uh, approached them about uh, six or seven years ago. And, uh, and because they, I, I got tired of, of, you know, using rod, you know, going to rod companies that they uh, were making good lengths, but or good actions, but their lengths were off of their like their like rod butts or something like that. And the, and uh, there was this trend, you know, about ten years ago to make rods look better and and it be less functional. And I'm not talking about everybody, but there was a, quite a few that that it was. Uh, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot of rods that I used that, that were prettier than they were, you know, useful. And I went to, to Fitzgerald because they make rods for people like me who are shallow water power fishermen. Uh, and, uh, they just made the perfect lengths and actions. Uh, and, uh, and some of the rods, you know, are really, really pretty too, but they are super, super functional. So they are just, uh, that's what attracted me to them is, is they made the, the, the right lengths and actions. And there's not a rod that they make that, that I wouldn't throw. There's definitely some that I like more than others, but um, it, I, I, I couldn't be more happy with their rods uh, over the last six to eight years. Excellent. I'm going to have to check them out at ICAST and get a, get a better sense of those. All right. I got to hear a bit about that badass black bass boat you're rocking that has more screens on it than my video studio. <laughs> Tell me about the ride, man. Yeah. So this year I, I switched to a, a Phoenix. So I've got a 921 Elite that I'm running this year. I could not be happier with that boat. Uh, a fantastic, uh, uh, you know, rough water boat for sure. Uh, and we've got it decked out. I mean, for the last Four years, um, I've I've been partnered with BassBoatElectronics.com. My buddy Jason over there is is a wizard with uh, you know electronics, and we went out and and uh, you know really designed the the best. I say we, but he really designed the best system possible that first year, which included three different brands of electronics. We've got Garmin, uh, Lowrance, and Humminbird on on the on that boat in 2019. And we got the same system here now in 2022. Uh, and we've, we've really been, um, you know, trying to perfect it and change out graphs. And we, we did that kind of at the beginning of this year, we tried a, a new system, but really it comes back to having that three brand system that we have. So I've tried to, to, you know, uh, fine tune it in other ways, but really it, it comes down to, it is dialed in right now. We've got Panoptics Live Scope with the Garmin unit on the very front. Um, and then we've got uh, also on the front, we've got a Lawrence HDS Live 12. We've got a, uh, a Humminbird Solix 2, which is strictly for 360. Um, and then we at the console, we've got a Humminbird unit and a Lawrence. And both of those run my uh, Navionics mapping. 
and uh, they both have really good side imaging or side scan uh, features. Every time I see pictures of or videos of that boat, I think that's a Black Hawk, man. That's with all those <laughs> screens, got those twin blade, twin power pro power pole blades on the back. That that's just a, a combat machine. All right, let's jump back to the pro circuit, which provides a lot of opportunities for you to fish under a lot of conditions in a lot of different environments. How do you prep for fishing water you've never fished before? And how important is pre-fishing for you when you're setting your game plan for a tournament in water you haven't fished before? Well, you know, going back to, um, to the Navionics mapping, really the, the, it starts with, with, you know, looking on my, my, um, Navionics app on my iPad or my phone, uh, and just, just doing a little bit of research and getting comfortable with how the, the lake lays out. And that takes a while, you know, so I'm, I'm in the very beginning, I'm doing that maybe, you know, getting a little bit of information off of, uh, you know, sources online and, and watching videos and just trying to get a feel for like how this lake fishes, which it always is different. Once we get to the fishery, it's never, never feels like it's, it's the same. I always have to adjust. So I don't try to like get too many preconceived notions before an event. Um, but I definitely like to, to kind of get a feel for the areas on the mapping, uh, that, that I might want to focus on in practice and, uh, and just get, you know, some basics as far as lures and things that are going to work. Um, and that really tees me up for, for, for practice. And, uh, but from there, you just gotta go out there and, uh, just kind of go with the flow. I mean, there's just no real secrets to it. You just got to go out there and, and, uh, and start breaking the lake down. And if you go into it with too many preconceived notions, or you try to fish one area only during practice, that can really burn you. I had that experience last year on the pro circuit. When we went from three days of practice to two days of practice, I had to really relearn, uh, my, my practice strategy. And that included, you know, essentially treating my two days of practice the same way I treated three days of practice where I fished everywhere and then dialed it in, in the, in the tournament. Um, and I had some tournaments where I tried to just pick one area and pick it apart. And man, that is a recipe for disaster as much as it's a, you know, it can be successful strategy too. All right. That sounds great. All right. One last bass question, sort of. Yep. A few years back, and I don't expect you to remember this, you and I were talking at ICAST about redfish and Z-Man lures, and you talked about how fishing for redfish had a lot of similarities to bass fishing, which makes sense since reds carry the moniker of red bass or channel bass. And I found the conversation really interesting. And so I was wondering, particularly given that in season five, episode eight, you has you catching some monster reds out of Venice, Louisiana, with popping corks in the Z-Man Swimmer Z sexy mullet pattern. And in that show, mm -hmm. you even say, I love that color, even when bass fishing. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that comparison between redfish and bass. Yeah, I mean, I I do not claim to be an expert at redfish at all. I've only gone maybe a half dozen times. But there's definitely a big, um, you know, parallel between you know, the shallow water power fishing tactics that I use for bass and the shallow water power fishing tactics I use, I've used in the past for, for redfish. And, uh, you know, uh, the, some of the places, especially in that situation, we were fishing dirty water. I mean, it was, you couldn't see, you know, you know more than a couple inches down in the water column. And so you needed a bait that had a bright 
present, you know, it, it was just a brighter presentation. That sexy mullet has quite a bit of, of uh, chartreuse in it. And, uh, and so, you know, using the same principles we use in bass fishing, you know, whenever you're, you're uh, faced with dirtier water, you want to use a brighter bait or a darker bait too, you know, uh, black and blue and, and, uh, and bright, you know, a pearl or, or pearl and chartreuse or chartreuse, those colors are going to pop out in that dirtier water. Um, even though, you know, the fish in dirty water situations are generally not using their, their sense of vision as much. They're using their, their, um, you know, lateral line, uh, uh, you know, uh, senses to, to find those, those, uh, bait fish or those baits. And then, but once they get close and they can see them, you know, I want something that, that is easily visible. And so that, I, I guess that's kind of what I was touching on in that, in that, um, uh, that episode is, you know, we were kind of trying to match the, the bait to the water clarity. Excellent. All right. Let's put bass aside at least for a minute or two. I, I mentioned earlier that you guide for Baranoff Wilderness Lodge in Alaska. Yeah. Tell us a bit about that and what kinds of fishing you guide there. Yeah, so I've been uh, that that's one of the the coolest things that I've had the privilege to to be part of in my my whole life is is uh is the opportunity to work at the Baranoff Wilderness Lodge up there in in southeast Alaska. Um I started that job when I was, uh, when I was 18, the night I graduated high school, I flew up to, uh, Alaska to start my first season up there and didn't know what to expect. Didn't even think that I'd really, uh, enjoy the fishing that much because I was a bass fisherman and what is a bass fisherman going to do in Alaska? Um, but I'm glad that I said yes to that opportunity because, uh, it's been, it's been amazing, but, uh, we fish for primarily halibut, and in the in salmon in the salt water, so we fish for for various species of, of uh, Pacific salmon, uh, such as um, uh, king salmon, uh, silvers, chum, and pinks. Those are the core ones that we fish for. We do have some rivers that have some uh, sockeye, but we generally never catch any of those. Um, but um, but yeah, so we do that, and then we also do some freshwater trips. You pretty much get the you get the choose your pick your poison uh at the, at the lodge you get to to you know the first day you fly in you, we go saltwater fishing you know and just get the fish boxes started and then the next days um throughout the week you can choose saltwater or freshwater and so um it's it's really cool you, to to hike from hiking up a river and catching you know uh dolly varden uh, trout uh really char family but um and then uh you know, the, the river run salmon and, or fishing out deep for, for halibut, salmon, lingcod, those type of fish, man, it is a really, really cool experience. I'm still not the best at it. You know, don't get me wrong, but I really enjoy going up there for, you know, nowadays, a few weeks to a month, um, and, and kind of being on paid vacation, going up there and, you know, flailing about trying to catch, catch a bunch of, of fish for my clients like with all the other guides up there that do it you know a lot more than I do nowadays I, I mean to me that's just fantastic I fish central uh, south central Alaska a lot Kenai all the way up to um yeah. Palmer area um was going pre-COVID going at least you know going every year and I keep debating do I want to retire to the Keys or do I want to retire to Alaska because uh you know those are just the uh, some of the greatest just fantastic fishing all right yeah. Miles 
This has been fantastic. And to wrap this up, I want to ask you our traditional final question. And that is, given all of your experiences in angler, from the Keys all the way up to Alaska, all the fish you've caught, what's your grail fish? What's the one fish on your bucket list that's still out there calling your name? Tuna. I want to go catch a tuna. I, I want to go up to Nova Scotia and catch one of those really big tuna. That that right there is my bucket list. Bass fishing is still above and beyond my favorite thing to do. Uh, still even now since I've done all this other stuff. But tuna is on my bucket bucket list. I got to get up there and chase one of those behemoths. Oh, yeah, right with you. I agree. That's great. What a great bucket list fish. Miles, I can't thank you enough for chatting with me on the Fishing Professor Show today. Thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Thank you. I'm honored, Sid. Thanks for having me. I hope to be back. Oh, we will have you back. In fact, I want to talk to you about that sometime. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right, them hound dogs are barking, letting us know it's that time, time for the bourbon break, a moment in the Rodcast when we set aside the fishing talk and turn our, turn our attention to that loosener of tongues that always contributes to great fishing stories. And yeah, I'm talking about bourbon or whiskey or whatever spirit floats my boat for the week. And this week, I want to clear things up a bit and talk about a spirit that isn't quite a whiskey. It's what has the potential to become a bourbon, but it never reaches that potential intentionally. I'm talking about what they call a white whiskey. And even though it's not yet a whiskey, a great clear whiskey, I'm talking about Buffalo Trace White Dog Mash Number 1. Now, I like white whiskeys. Well, I like a lot of them. There are a few out there that I wouldn't polish my prop with, but mostly I like them a lot. And when I was running my own still, white whiskeys were my primary objective, mostly because I don't have the patience to age anything. Yeah, white whiskey and moonshine are pretty much the same thing, and Buffalo Trace's White Dog is probably my absolute favorite. I stumbled on White Dog accidentally at a small liquor store in Bryson City, North Carolina about 10 years ago, and it's become a standard on my shelf. I'll admit up front, too, that my favorite way to pour White Dog is to mix whiskey sours. But let me clarify a little bit here. It's, I'm calling this a whiskey, not a bourbon, but it's not a bourbon. So it's also not really yet a whiskey. But as the great Lebowski would say in the parlance of our times, I'll call it a whiskey since that's what everyone else calls it. Now, it's not a bourbon because a bourbon is aged in oak. And what the white dog is, is the raw liquor that hasn't been aged. It's what comes straight off the still. And so it's clear. It hasn't taken on the tent of charred oak casks, and it hasn't settled into its flavors. It's clear as a mountain water stream, and even though it's raw, you can taste hints of that corn blending that would have formed the foundation of a bourbon had you let it age. So think of, think of the white dog as akin to eating a great piece of veal or lamb. It just hasn't had the time to develop into the bourbon it could have become, and its stature comes from its youth. Its youthfulness comes, though, in its hints of potential. It's no innocent child, though. This is a feral kid. Most folks won't want to put up with this kid. It's raw and rough, and there's nothing subtle about it. It'll grab your throat like a cuda on a spoon. Keep in mind that the white dog is 125 proof, so it's got some bite. 
But despite its crude arrogance, the Buffalo Trace White Dog has a nose that announces its origins in corn. Because it is yet to have taken on the flavors of the oak in the aging process, the flavor is dominated by the heavy corn mash base. You can pick up on the sweetness of the corn in the nose, but there's no doubt that the dominant scent is corn. And yeah, that corn is the dominant flavor as well, all the way through the taste spectrum. I tend to think of the taste as being akin to what it would be like eating a bowl of cornflakes, but substituting grain alcohol for the milk. I know that doesn't sound pleasant, but the white dog really has a great flavor spectrum, so long as you know you're going to get the burn of the alcohol. And frankly, that spectrum is monochromatic. It's corn. There's no fruit, no leather, no smoke, no caramel here, because they haven't been introduced through the aging process, through the oak that makes it a bourbon. There's just corn and spirit. So you're not going to get the standard whiskey reviewer's bullshit of I get hints of cherries and antifreeze mixed with the floral vanilla of my wife's deodorant crap with this booze. It's corn and alcohol throughout, and it is good. Like I said, I love the Buffalo Trace in a whiskey sour. I also like it poured in some hot chocolate on a cold night. It also pairs really, where, really well with a nice Arturo Fuente Hemingway. Not as well as a good bourbon does, but it still works. I think for most drinkers, you're going to want to find a way to mix the white dog, but you owe it to yourself to give it a tasting before you decide to whip this child into submission. So really, if you're a fan of bourbon or other whiskey, I think you owe it to yourself to try Buffalo Trace's white dog, if for no other reason than to better understand what the right-off-the-still liquor tastes like so you get a better sense of what the oak aging process does to transmogrify a white whiskey like the White Dog into a golden goodness of bourbon. In fact, here's a little challenge. Take a taste of the Buffalo Trace White Dog, clear your palate, and then take a taste of Buffalo Trace bourbon and compare what happens in that aging process. So that's that for this week's bourbon break for the week. But before we put an end to this bourbon break, and as a final note, and as my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I reviewed are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on the keen sense of bourbon know-how I have developed over the many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the Fifth National Bank in Norfolk, Virginia, one of the finest country bars on the East Coast, and tell, to tell the truth, where I used to don my cowboy hat and wait tables after having spending a day fishing around the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. So here's to the women with little pink shoes who steal all our money and drink all our booze. Now, she's not a virgin, but that's not a sin because she's still got the box that cherry came in. All right. As always, if you have comments about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at Sid at So that's that. And let's get back on the water. Right, I think it's time for this week's top 10 list. And this week, I want to do something a little bit different. Given that great conversation we've just had with pro bass angler Miles Berghoff, I want to keep the attention on the bass world, but I want to twist it a little bit. This week, as encouragement to all of our bass angling brothers and sisters out there, I want to offer up a top 10 lures 
that are commonly used for bass fishing that can easily be used for saltwater fishing. This way, for those of you bass fishermen out there who've been thinking about doing a little saltwater fishing or are going to be on vacation near the ocean and wouldn't mind doing some fishing but don't want to have to re-outfit or buy new lures just for a short foray into the briny world, this is a list of the lures you probably already have and some suggestions on how to fish them in salt water. Now, as a caveat to this list, though, let me just warn you all, freshwater anglers, that saltwater corrodes. And most freshwater tackle and lures were not designed to withstand the erosive properties of salt water. So if you use any of your bass lures in salt water, be sure to rinse them in fresh water and let them dry before you seal them back up in your tackle boxes. Likewise, I want to offer a quick anecdote that was relayed to me by my father, who, while sitting in the barber chair, overheard a gentleman from the Midwest who was sitting in the chair next to him at the barber shop say to the barber that he and his family were visiting the beach on family vacation. My folks live on the beach, so this all takes place in the barber shop in my parents' home on the east coast of Florida. The tourist, we'll just call him a snowbird for convenience sake, conveyed that it was his first time to the ocean that he was asking the barber what he and his family should do during their vacation. The barber immediately responded to the snowbird that he and his family might enjoy fishing since they probably hadn't had the experience of saltwater fishing in their Midwestern home. The snowbird looked at the barber with indignance and said he didn't think it was funny for the barber to be making fun of tourists. The barber was confused by the man's response and said he didn't understand why suggesting fishing was making fun of tourists. The snowbird then proceeded to tell the barber that he knew damn well that the ocean was salt water and that nothing can live in salt water and that clearly the ocean was devoid of life because nothing there could live in anything salty. He said he did not appreciate the barber trying to prank him and his family into going fishing where clearly there weren't any fish. That's a true story, ladies and gentlemen. And so I say to all of our bass fishing brothers and sisters that the ocean is indeed a phenomenal place to fish. And you really should give it a try. And here are 10 of your bass fishing lures that will work quite well in salt water. Let's start with number 10 and skirted bass jigs. Originally, skirted bass jigs were designed to imitate crawfish. And since many saltwater species eat small crustaceans, the skirted bass jig converts well from freshwater to the saltwater world. The skirted bass jig also works similarly to many bucktail jigs that are effective saltwater, saltwater lures. Because there are so many kinds of skirted bass jigs, football jigs, finesse jigs, flipping jigs, swim jigs, micro jigs, and so on, there's a lot of opportunity to find skirted bass jigs that will work well in saltwater scenarios. Skirted bass jigs like Chompers, Skirted Football, uh, Bico's Original Jig, Man, Jig, Z-Man's TRD Crawzy, which I really like for inshore fishing, and the likes, they all work really well for saltwater fishing. All right. At number nine, let's go with poppers. And here I'm talking about both chuggers and spitters. Both styles work in saltwater, topwater fishing. I'm thinking of lures like Rebels Pop R, the Hula Popper, Creek Chubb's Knucklehead, and Yozuri's 3D Minnow Popper. There's actually a saltwater version of the Yozuri 3D Minnow Popper, but the freshwater version works just as fine. These kinds of surface disruptors will work on a great variety of saltwater species like snook, trout, redfish, and tarpon. At number eight, I'd say that spinnerheads are an ideal freshwater to saltwater lure. In fact, I regularly recommend TTI Blakemore's Roadrunner heads for red fishing, trout fishing, snook fishing, and other inshore fishing. And the TTI Blakemore Roadrunners that are used for bass fishing are as equally effective for those same redfish and other inshore species. 
And since spinner heads like the Roadrunner are also great walleye lures, their universal applicability just speaks to their value for saltwater focused lures. Of course, smaller spinner heads were first really used as panfish lures, but larger models began making their way into the favor of bass anglers as well. Spinner heads like the Strike King Tour grade spinhead jig head, Berkeley's Fusion underspin jig head, War Eagle's underspin jig head, and Buckeye Lure's suspend blade jig head all make reliable transitions from freshwater to saltwater. At number seven, let me recommend you try your swim baits in saltwater fishing scenarios. And here I'm talking about both hard body and soft body swim baits. Because swim baits mimic bait fish, many of the profiles of freshwater bait like shad or minnows match the profiles of many saltwater bait fish. Try using swim baits like Storm's Wild Eye Shad, Weston Fishing's Hypo Tease Glide Bait, Spro BBZ1 Slow Sinking Swim Bait, and the river to sea S waiver 168 swim bait, for example. At number six, let's think about using chatter baits in saltwater. Now, some saltwater lure manufacturers have begun to adapt chatter baits to saltwater hardware, like Z-Man's diesel chatter bait. But a lot of Z-Man's freshwater chatter baits will work just as well in saltwater as they do in freshwater, like their Project Z chatter bait and their chatterbait jackhammer. And since Z-Man Chatterbait seemed to be the industry leader right now, and since they held some of the original Chatterbait patterns, it makes sense to point to them as an example. However, there are other great bass-focused Chatterbaits that have come out lately that will work well in saltwater applications, like Strike King's Naked Rage Blade, Picasso Special FX Shock Blade, and Terminator Shutterbaits. At number five, I'm going to go back to topwaters. Now, I know I already talked about poppers, which are a specific kind of topwater, but aside from chuggers and spitters, there are a lot of traditional bass lures and other freshwater lures that work great in saltwater. In fact, for many years, my go-to saltwater topwater was a Smithwick Devil Horse, which was really great on speckled trout. Other freshwater targeted topwater lures like Zara Spook, Skitter Walkers, Hedden Baby Torpedoes, Rapala's Floating Minnow, Jitterbugs, Knuckleheads, and so on. These are all great saltwater baits. In fact, many companies like Hedden and Rapala make both fresh and saltwater versions of their topwater lures because of their effectiveness in, in both environments. Species like speckled trout, striped bass, bluefish, false albacore, tuna, redfish, snook, and tarpon all love topwater lures, and nearly all freshwater topwater topwaters will make the transition to saltwater perfectly. At number four, spinnerbaits. Let's go ahead and get spinnerbaits into the mix. Now, spinnerbaits are a mainstay of bass angling, and in recent years, the saltwater lure industry has picked up on how the efficiency of a spinnerbait might transition into inshore saltwater fishing. Companies like Strike King have capitalized on bringing spinnerbait technology and design to the saltwater market. Strike King's Redfish Magic, for example, has become a mainstay of redfish anglers across the southeast. Keep in mind, though, that the real difference between a traditional bass spinnerbait and a spinnerbait designed for inshore saltwater fishing and target species like redfish is that the saltwater version of spinnerbaits have to be made with a much heavier wire gauge than you'd use with freshwater species. This is because of the size, the toothiness, and the veracity of saltwater species that would demolish a traditional bass lure, particularly after the lure has been hit multiple times. Nonetheless, your bass spinnerbaits will work in saltwater quite well for a little while. 
At number three, let's go with suspending jerk baits. Any bass angler worth his or her salt will tell you that you have to have a good array of reliable jerk baits in your bass arsenal. And that is fortunate because a lot of inshore anglers will tell you the same thing. And so, yes, freshwater jerk baits, whether the ones you use for bass or walleye or trout or pike or whatever, are also great in saltwater. Jerk baits like Lucky Craft Stacy, Gary Yamamoto's Tanuka, Yozuri's 3DB jerk bait, Rapala's Husky Jerk, and so on. These all work great in saltwater. At number two, let's go with crankbaits, and we'll count lipless crankbaits like rattle trap or lip crankbaits like Strike, like Strike King Square Build crankbaits. Like jerkbaits, many companies that make freshwater crankbaits also make saltwater crankbaits. For example, Rattle Trap makes several models of its crankbaits with saltwater hardware. However, for Rattle Trap, the hardware is really the only difference between the freshwater models and the saltwater, so your freshwater versions work just as well in saltwater. Other crankbaits like Rappel is Rattling 05, the Kevin Van Dam inspired Strike King KVD Shallow Square Bill crankbait, Rappel Jointed Shallow Shad Rap 7, and Rose Cooley Multi Jointed crankbait. These are all effective saltwater crankbaits. So that brings us to my number one bass bait that works great in saltwater. But before we call it out, let's get a quick recap of the top nine. At 10, skirted bass jigs. At nine, poppers. At number eight, spinnerheads. At number seven, we've got swim baits. At number six, we've got chatter baits. At five, top waters. At four, spinner baits. At three, suspending jerk baits. And number two, we have got crank baits. And so that brings us to my number one recommendation for bass anglers who want to use what they already have in their tackle boxes to start experimenting with saltwater fishing. All of those soft body lures you have, and yes, even those worms you use when Texas rigging. In fact, the premier saltwater designer, Mark Nicholas of DOA Lures, makes a lure called the snake coil, which is just really a worm, but Nichols swears it's a phenomenal redfish lure. And while I don't fish it a lot, I do have a few, and I can confirm it does catch redfish. However, it's really all of your other soft bodies for bass that transition nicely into saltwater. This is why companies like Bass Assassin are able to take their same designs for bass and market them for freshwater and saltwater. And saltwater assassin line are phenomenal lures. Shad bodies, grub tails, tube bodies, jerk bait designs, stick bait designs all work well in saltwater, whether rigged with a jig head, a wide gapped hook, a weedless worm hook, a drop weight, or however you rig your soft bodies for freshwater. I like bass soft bodies like Berkeley's Grass Pig, Strike King's KVD Swim and Shiner, Strike King's Raging Claw, River to Sea's Rig Walker, Trigger's Hodad, Big Bite Bait's Real Deal Craw, Stinky Fingers Paddle Tail, Creme Lures Craw, and dozens of other soft bodies that are as effective in saltwater as they are in freshwater. So that's a look at 10 lures that you can pull from your bass tackle to fish in saltwater environments. Again, if you use these lures in saltwater, be sure to rinse them in freshwater to help prevent corrosion. And I urge all freshwater anglers, whether you're bass-focused, walleye-focused, grayling-focused, trout-focused, salmon-focused, sturgeon-focused, or whatever, that you try your hand in the briny with your own reliable lures. As always, just a reminder that this is my list. I am not sponsored, so there are no sponsor influences here. And of course, you may disagree with my inclusions here, but that's on you, baby. 
If you do have questions, comments, concerns, or stock tips, you can always reach me at sid at inventivefishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. Let's get back to the Rodcast. Well, my listening crew, that brings us to the end of another episode, and what a great one it's been. I want to thank Miles Berghoff for taking the time to chat with me in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today, and I wish him the best of luck in this year's tournament series. And if you want to do some fishing trips up in Alaska, you might want to check out Baranoff Wilderness Lodge in Alaska, and maybe you can have Miles guide you on an epic Alaskan fishing adventure. Before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The tide is in. I say again, the tide is in. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to the Rodcast so you don't miss a single episode. We've got a great new episode coming up next week, and I hope you'll give a listen as soon as it drops on Wednesday. Remember, new episodes drop every Wednesday. As always, please be sure to share the Fishing Professor Rodcast with everyone you know. There are so many ways to access the Rodcast now. You can always listen to it on your favorite platform. You'll find the Rodcast on our hosting site at thefishingprofessor.podbean.com and on the Podbean app as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Player FM, the Samsung Podcast app, and the Podchaser. As always, if you've got a comment or question about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s, bourbon breaks, interviews, or information about specific products, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the Rodcast. Be sure to check out the Inventive Fishing webpages, and be sure to follow us on Twitter and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And with that, I'll bid you all adieu. I'll be back next week with another episode, and until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on! The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!